Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling? Awesome, man. Well, today is an exciting day here at Bridgepoint. It's Life Group Sunday. Now, if you're newer to Bridgepoint, you've been checking things out, you might be wondering, what on earth is a life group? Well, life groups are just small groups of people who are meeting together throughout the area, all throughout the week. And, and man, the reason we do that is because we believe that the, one of the biggest factors of change is not staring at the back of somebody's head in front of you on a Sunday morning, but it's when we all get around a dinner table together to share a meal, or when we sit in a living room, we start to open up and share life. You know, really, I think some of us can struggle with, like, how can we change? Because if we follow Jesus, we want to change to be more like him. And I actually don't think the reason that we struggle with change is because we don't desire change. Um, The reason I know this is because in January, if you ever go to the gym, there's, like, no parking spots available. All the machines are being used. But I tell you what, by the time you get to August, there's plenty of parking spots. You don't have to wait on any machines. So we want to change, but how do we do that? In fact, we did a whole series on this at the very beginning of the year called How We Change, because I'm just not creative with the sermon series titles. And what we saw is there's three factors that influence who we are. First is what we believe, like about ourselves, about the world. The second is how we behave. So what are the habits and patterns, behaviors we've developed in our lives? And the third thing is where we belong, because the people we surround ourselves with actually shape us into who we are. So if we want to be more like Jesus, we want to surround ourselves with people who are trying to be more like Jesus. And that's why if you're here today, I know that we have a group for you. We've got all types of groups. There's some groups that are based around activities like knitting or board games. We've got groups that are based around a Bible study or a curriculum. In fact, one of those is called Freedom. And this is something that's near and dear to my heart. In fact, as your pastor, my hope is that at least at some point in your time here at Bridgepoint, you would go through our Freedom group. Because really, the the group is just about identifying the lies that we've believed. In fact, I love the saying that the most dangerous lies aren't the ones that we believe, but the ones that we live. Because what you believe actually influences how you behave. And so you start to think, yeah, you know, I'm not lovable. No one, if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't want to be my friend. And so what do we do? We keep people at an arm's length. Or we think, man, God couldn't really use me. Like, I don't really have any gifts or talents. So we never actually take steps of obedience to do the things that God has called us to do. And so really, freedom is just about identifying all those lies that we've been living and then replacing that with the truth of God's word about what he, who he says he created us to be. And so in just a few minutes, we're going to get an opportunity to, you'll be able to go check out all the different groups being offered. You'll be able to, to eat some good food. And, and man, I'm going to encourage you to sign up for a group. But before we do that, this morning, I want to jump back into the series that we kicked off last week called Neighbors. Now, if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go back, check it out on YouTube or on the podcast, because the whole idea behind this series comes from a conversation Jesus had with an expert in the Jewish scriptures. This expert comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what should I do in order to live a life that's partnering with God? Like, what should I do to see heaven come to earth? What kind of life should I live to see this world restored, renewed, and redeemed? And Jesus says, well, you're the expert in scripture, so what do you say? And what this guy does is actually brilliant. He takes two commands from the Jewish scriptures, and he fuses them together. He says, love God with all that you have, and then love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. Just go and do that. Simple, right? Simple, but it's not always easy. Love God 
and love our neighbor. But the reality is I think that a lot of us, we understand the vertical component of that, right? Like loving God. And so we read our Bible, we pray, we fast, we worship, we get all that. But we oftentimes forget that there's a horizontal relationship to our faith as well, where we have to love other people. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, that we all know people who read their Bible and pray and they worship and they're you know, in life groups and all that kind of stuff, but they don't love the people around them. And I think that when we uh, neglect to fully love people, we're actually not fully loving God. And so we have to have both of those components together. Now, when we talk about loving our neighbor, though, this is not some like ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy feeling. Love requires you to put somebody else above yourself. Love requires you to sacrifice for somebody else. In fact, I shared this story before, but my wife and I were dating uh, back in college. We had a, a week-long break at school, and she went on a mission trip because she loves Jesus, and I stayed back because I have no idea. I must have thought I had something better to do, um, but I remember I ended up finding a job. I worked that whole week, and I made $200 in one week. That's pretty good. I mean, I told you I was in college. Do you know how much ramen you can buy for $200? It's like a semester's worth of food right there. And so the rational, reasonable thing that you would think is like, let's store that away. Let's use it as needed. That is not what I did. I went to Target, and I bought the entire series of Friends on DVD because that's Bethany's favorite show. So when she got back, I got to give her this gift. And you think, Matt, that was pretty dumb, right? And in some respects, you're right. It wasn't the rational thing. But when you love somebody, you're prioritizing them even above yourself. When you love somebody, you're going to sacrifice so that they get what they need, even if it comes at a cost to you. And so this whole series, we're just looking at what does it look like to love our neighbors who are different than us? What does it look like to prioritize other people and their circumstances and their situations? And what sacrifices do we need to make? And so you're not just hearing from me this series. You're hearing from people right here at Bridgepoint. In fact, last week, Kelly Campbell, it was just so powerful. Would you give it up for her one more time? You know, Kelly lives with a disability, and so she was really helping us open our eyes. What does it look like to love our neighbors with disabilities? And see, uh, you know, as an able-bodied person, I have the privilege, I don't have to think about, are there ramps, or how am I going to navigate through these buildings, or where are the, the, the handicapped spots going to be? I don't ever have to think about those. But to love my neighbor means I have to start thinking about those things, and I have to make the sacrifices so, so that I'm actually advocating for and supporting people who do have disabilities. Just like a really practical example of this. You know, Kelly was sharing with me, and I hope it's okay to share this, um, but we had a worship team night for, for all of our worship team members uh, a few weeks ago, and I know that as she was getting ready, she's trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get in the house? Where are their steps? And the family that was hosting the home, they could have easily just said, you know, we'll figure it out when you get here. But instead, they went around and they took pictures throughout the house, so she knew exactly the lay of the land so that when she got there, she would be able to figure it out. And that, she told me that just brought her like another level of peace, going into that situation. Just a very simple thing where, where the host family just took time. I'm going to take pictures. I'm sure they had other things to do, but, but Kelly was more important. And so they prioritized her above themselves. They took that simple step. And so over the course of this series, we're just examining different types of neighbors that we have and what it looks like to really love them. Now this morning, we're going to look at a topic that unfortunately has become a bit of a hot topic in our culture. And so as I kind of preface this, I want to remind us that in this series, 
Our goal is not to become defensive or to, to kind of put up excuses or anything else. Our goal is simply to listen to the people who are sharing so we can learn and try to learn from their life experience. And it's important to me, as your pastor, listen, I want you to hear what they are saying and not what you think they are saying. Because today we are going to talk about the issue of race. And I'll just be honest with you, like a large majority of us in this room are white. And I know when the topic of race comes up, what we think people are saying is all white people are racist. And so we immediately put up defenses when it comes to this subject. But what I want us to do is to actually listen to what they're saying. Let's marinate in it. And let's see how we can open our eyes to better love our neighbors who are people of color. And you might be thinking, Matt, why on earth are we talking about such a divisive issue? Well, there's two reasons. The first one, I'm going to step on my soapbox for a minute, okay? As your pastor, I am not going to allow Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow to pastor you in the areas of race, okay? We're just, that's that's not, not how we're going to do things because they're not bringing a perspective that's steeped in Scripture and the Christian tradition. So as your pastor, I know that we have to talk about issues that sometimes we want to avoid, And sometimes we want to come into church and pretend these things don't exist, but they do. And so it's my responsibility to bring that up. And actually, I think that some of the issues we see in the American church today are because pastors are afraid to talk about those issues because it does make people uncomfortable. By the way, I think if Jesus was here this morning, I'm pretty sure he'd make me feel uncomfortable about some things in my life. And and that's okay because our goal is to, to change and to grow and to be more like Jesus. So I'll step off my soapbox there. But the other reason that we want to talk about this is because it's all over the New Testament. In fact, did you know most of Paul's letters are dealing with race relations between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish or Gentile people? Like almost every letter, he's navigating some kind of racial conflict. And we don't always think about that because we think of Judaism as a faith. But remember, it's a faith and an ethnicity. And all of a sudden, you have all of these issues around race that are popping up in the early church. So before I bring our guests up this morning, I kind of want to set the stage for us, and, and, and I want us to look at a passage in Ephesians, but before we do that, let me give you some context. Now, the story that the Bible is telling is one that starts off by pointing out the brokenness in our world. You're like, Matt, did you go to seminary to know that this world is imperfect, right? Yeah, yes, paid a lot of money to learn that theological truth. But you can look around and we see the brokenness of the world. There's violence, there's hostility, there's bitterness and broken relationships. I mean, even cancer and AIDS are evidence that this world is not the way God intended for it to be. Are there beautiful parts of the world? Absolutely. But it's still a broken place. But the the Bible tells us that God's plan is not to evacuate his people out of the brokenness, but to actually come down and to fix the brokenness, to bring heaven to earth, to renew and restore creation. And so in the Jewish scriptures, we learn that God's plan is through the nation of Israel and that the nation of Israel is supposed to show the world what heaven on earth looks like. Like there's supposed to be a blessing to the nations to show the world what it looks like when God is in charge. And to do this, God gives um, what's oftentimes referred to as the law or different regulations that the Jewish people would use to guide how they live their lives. Are you guys tracking with me so far? All right, I don't want to lose you on the front end. Now, the reason God gave the law, the law is a good thing, by the way. But the reason God gave it was, was twofold. The first so the Jewish people would know what it looks like to, to experience heaven on earth. So this is why they do things like um, they're not supposed to hoard a massive amount of wealth, but they're supposed to care for the poor. 
They're not supposed to have a king. They're supposed to trust God to rule over them. They're not supposed to have a massive standing military. They're supposed to trust God to protect them. Every few years, all the land would go back to its original owner, and the slaves would be set free because that's what heaven on earth looks like. So, so on one hand, they have to be taught what that looks like, but then the second thing they have to do is they have to guard themselves against pagan influence from other ideologies and other cultures seeping in. So that's why they're very particular about what they eat and what they wear because they want to make sure that we remain separate but that we show the world what heaven on earth looks like. Are you still tracking with me? All right, because what the enemy does, the enemy, he's smart. And so what he does is he comes in and he hijacks this system. And so what you see in the Old Testament is that the Jewish people will make sure that they're eating the right foods and making the right sacrifices, but they're not actually changing who they are. Because what do they do? They start to neglect the poor and store up a bunch of wealth. They don't trust God to lead them. They appoint a king. They don't trust God to protect them. They build a military. And by the way, they never returned to the land or freed the slaves. They didn't do that, but they kept the laws. And so in a way, what was supposed to be a blessing to the nations ended up being a signal where the, the nation of Israel felt superiority over the other nations because we're God's chosen people. Look, and we follow all these rules and these commands, and, and God has chosen us, and he has not chosen you. So do you see how that gets twisted in the story? And so God calls his people back to repentance. Uh, they, they don't for centuries. So God removes his protection. The, the nation of Israel is conquered. And when Jesus enters the scene, he does what Israel failed to do. He kept the laws. He kept the commands. He showed what heaven on earth looks like. So when Jesus is healing people, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, they're not magic tricks. He's bringing heaven to earth. And the New Testament tells that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he did away with the old laws and regulations, all right? And now he has a, a new humanity, a new people, both Jewish and non-Jewish, both Jewish and Gentile, who now can be a part of this new kingdom, this Jesus nation, not based on ethnicity, but based on their allegiance to Jesus, now, this causes massive amounts of problems in the early church because now you have Jewish people and Gentile people worshiping Jesus, but they're both looking down on each other because the Jewish people are looking down on the Gentiles like, you don't really know scripture. You don't follow the commands or the feasts or the festivals. Like, you're not really doing the things that God has called us to do. And the Gentiles looked down on the Jewish people and they were like, why do you keep following the old law that Jesus died to get rid of? Let's have some barbecue at the church get together, right? Like there's, there's all of this tension and this conflict. And so all throughout Paul's letters, he's navigating this. And I actually want to look at this passage from Ephesians chapter two. We're going to start in verse 11. Just a quick thought here before we bring our guests up. Paul says, so then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Stop here for a moment. He's talking to the Gentiles in this church. So guys, don't forget used to be cut off. used to not be a part of God's people. You were living in the world without hope. You didn't have access to him. But because of Jesus' blood, now you have been brought near. Now you've been made part of the family. Now you are invited in to this Jesus nation. And verse 14, this is the money verse right here. It says, for he is our peace who made both 
groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. So what is Paul saying? He said when Jesus died on the cross, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. What is the dividing wall of hostility? A lot of times we think it's a dividing wall between us and God, but that's not what he's talking about, right? So there's two groups of people. There's Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And when Jesus died on the cross, he put away the laws and regulations so he could make one people tearing down the dividing wall between the two races. And by the way, when the people first heard this, the, the dividing wall of hostility, that was not a metaphor. It's like a legit thing. Like these people maybe had even gone to the temple that Herod built. Herod built this temple for the Jewish people to go worship. Outside of the temple, there was a wall. And on the wall, there was an inscription that said, essentially, if any non-Jewish person enters to worship God, they'll be punished with death. All right, talk about a dividing wall of hostility, right? Like that's, that goes beyond beware of dog. I mean, that's like there is legit racial tension. But when Jesus died, he tore that down. And actually, the evidence that Jesus is king is the fact that these two groups that have had hostility now come together in unity to worship the one true king. Like, does that make sense? Like, how many of you, like, when I grew up, evangelism was like door-to-door. Anybody ever do door-to-door evangelism? Anybody too embarrassed to raise your hand to say you did door-to-door evangelism? Like, we think, that, and listen, I'm not ragging on that, but what, what actually the Bible talks about evangelism is being a witness to the fact that Jesus is king. So the very fact that two different races who have been hostile to one another for years come together under the name of Jesus, that may be the greatest evangelism tool that we have. Like, when we come together despite our differences under the name of Jesus, that's what it looks like for Jesus to be king. Now, I'm glad we live in a world where there's no racial hostility, and we, we couldn't possibly imagine what that's like. No, of course, like we live in a day and age where this has become a hot-button issue. And so what I want to do for us this morning is I want to invite some of our Bridgepoint family members up onto the stage. We're going to have a conversation about what does this look like for us here as a church. So again, I want to caution you, don't put walls up, because a lot of times in, in, in conversations about race, they get filled with guilt and shame. Guilt and shame, by the way, that comes from the enemy. Because guilt and shame, we don't want to address that, so we put walls up, we come up with excuses where it doesn't need to be addressed. But instead, let's be open to conviction from the Holy Spirit. See, conviction is helpful because it brings about change and compassion and love for our neighbor. And so this morning, as we have this conversation, let's listen with open ears. And would you guys give a warm Bridgepoint welcome to Jay Bell and Kathleen Thorell. Jay always comes out here looking real nice, making me look like a slob. <laughs> um, well, guys, thank you guys for being here and doing this. And um, I know there's a, a lot of people here who may not have had the chance to meet you guys yet. And so, um, Jay, would you just start and just share a little bit of your story with us? What's up, everybody? Good morning. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland. I'm on the east side uh, in the inner city. Um, I'm, say, the 80s. It was a great year. I was born in... Um, so around 88, started realizing that uh, that was around the 
the Dare era. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, but um, Dare and you know the war on you know substances. So my dad um, and my mom were together. They did pretty good early on, um, but unfortunately, my father succumbed to that substance um, that was ravishing uh, my community and communities across the nation at that time. So uh, one evening, there was a lot of you know good music, hip-hop music, and my dad would always have parties on Friday, so he would disappear. So this one particular weekend, um, I noticed that he was gone, and his friends were still there anyway. My mom wasn't there. So I start going through the home, and I kicked the, the bathroom door in, and um, that was when I witnessed my father you know, abusing that particular substance. So that was a, a traumatic moment, I guess you could say, or a traumatic experience. So that's something that I couldn't you know, go to school and tell my, my guidance counselor, hey, I just saw my dad doing this, that, and the other, you know? I knew what was, exactly what was going on because it was on the news. So they were painting this picture um, about how people using this substance were like, just all over the place, wild people, you know? And my mom, over a period of time, kind of got tired of it. So a couple years later, about 12 years old, my mom and dad called me out to the porch and it's summertime, and, um, you know, she and he express, like, they're getting a divorce. So I was extremely disappointed, and um, I literally jumped off the porch, right, and just ran. And I believe I was running probably for the years to come, up until I was about, honestly, maybe 39, 40, before I even shared any of these things that, that ever happened in my life. Um, that same summer, things got really hard for us. Like, my father being able to maintain a home, obviously income is out with my mom gone. And things start changing. Like, we were taking cold showers because he couldn't keep the bills on. Or we were eating a lot of rice. <laughs> like, every morning, I'm like, I want no rice. I got tired of eating rice. So my sister and brother, I'm the oldest. So I started, you know, hustling because everybody in my neighborhood that looked like me was broke. And when you start having the freshest sneakers on and you're looking real fly, um, I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and he's like, yo, I did this. I stole this from my brother and this is what it looks like. So now I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, he's fresh. We fresh too. But at the same time, that wasn't the point. My dad wasn't having, you know, he wasn't doing so well. So I literally had to start doing what I was doing to make sure we had hot water my sister and brother could, you know, have what they needed. I'm 14, 15 years old, mind you. Um, that same winter, it goes into the winter, and this is my first encounter with the police. So we're in the back of a building, and they stop, and it's um, the vice is what it's called in Cleveland. So they stop us and say, what are you doing? You're in a drug-infested area. I'm like, the whole community is a drug-infested area. But um, so I'm 14, they rough us up at 14. And it's cold, they're slinging us around in the back of the building. And they're laughing, it's four of them, detectives. And it seemed like eternity, you know, how they was roughing us up. So we finally let us go. Um, going into a few years later, I'm 16 now, I'm not really, thinking about, because now I'm able to maintain a little bit of the things at home that's needed for my family, my sister and brother, rather, because my pops wasn't there. He would come and disappear and stuff like that. But anyway, at this time, I'm 16, we go to a particular neighborhood and there's a, 
a football game. So I witnessed my first murder, like in broad daylight. Um, I was 16, devastated. So I run home, and I tell my dad, like, yeah, I just saw, you know, somebody get murdered. And we know the guy because he's from my community. And my dad, literally, like, what are you crying for? And I'm like, I just saw some, you know, that's my thought. Like, I just saw somebody get murdered. And at that point, that made me feel like I couldn't express myself. Right, so now I'm learning to suppress my feelings now to show that I am tough or whatever it may be. Um, so again, that's another experience that altered how I view life. Um, what was made normal because maybe a year and a half later, I see another person get gunned down. And this time I go home, like, hey dad, I just saw someone get killed right here around such and such area. And that short period of time, now I'm thinking like, it's the norm. This is what is expected because that's the way my father, you know, helped me understand. I guess so. That was the the the, the really challenging experiences in my life. And then later on, I got into an altercation with someone on my on my in my neighborhood. And um, I always knew I wasn't supposed to be out there. I just had that 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 mindset, like man, this ain't what I'm supposed to be doing. So I went after that conversation or that altercation with the guy. I went to the end of the end of the block and was like, you know, I prayed, like foxhole prayers. And I'm like, you know, God, if you take me out of this situation, I'll do whatever you want. Obviously, it didn't go the way I expected. It was uh, about two years later, another situation came up where a gang of us were going to go to West Virginia. We were doing different things in that city. And um, they left me and another guy that night. And um, they ended up getting arrested, um, maybe eight, 10 of the guys ended up doing fair time. Um, and that was like, like it clicked, like this, something's wrong. So after that, I was maybe 18, me and my buddy was out. And um, I just knew I wasn't going to stay in Cleveland. So I left Cleveland that morning uh, with the clothes on my back and the money in my pocket and I never looked back. Yeah, and I know. If you get a chance to meet Jay, like he is like the most joyful person that you've ever met. And uh, but just to hear your life experience and how you've worked through that and how God brought you out of that um, is really incredible. Um, I know when we were talking, though, you said that, um, you know, growing up in Cleveland, you know, white, black, whatever, everybody's kind of in the same situation. So it wasn't until you moved here to Georgia that you experienced racism for the first time. So could you just share with us what those experiences were like? So again, everybody's broken in our neighborhood, whether you're white, black, or whatever. So we all helped each other out in our community. So moved to Georgia. I'm bored out of my mind. In our, in our city, you can walk pretty much, you know, block to block, get the train or whatever. So I'm walking um, on Favor Road off of Windy Hill, I'm like, yo, these streets are mad long. And, and so I'm walking up a hill, and I get, I mean, it's a big hill. So I get up the hill, and I'm just walking. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just walking. And I see, I hear a pickup truck first, and I, it got dual exhaust on it. And as, it, as it's approaching, I could see the back of it. The guys are standing up in the truck. It's a big Confederate flag flying out the back of the truck. And he got, you know, beverages in his hand and yelling, hey! So I'm like, these dudes are bugging. As they get closer, they're slamming, you know, smacking on the side of the truck. I'm like, this guy's out of his mind. And they yell. They, they didn't use that word, but they called me another name and everything. So I'm looking around, and I'm like, 
you know, thinking that there's going to be a director or, you know, somebody yelling cut because I, I couldn't believe that this guy is really doing it. I'm like, this is like 90, 90 like 2000 at this time. And um, so I, I kind of chuckled, laughed it off. But at the same time, I continue walking. I'm like, man, is this, you know, what I'm going to get ready to experience here? I come here to like make a change and have a better idea about what life is. So um, that was my first experience with with, with, with um, like a racist racism or uh, such a such a experience. Oh, no. Now, Kathleen, you have a, a different experience with uh, how you ended up here. Would you mind sharing that with us? Hey, everybody. I'm Kathleen. I am from Haiti. <laughs> um, was um, born there and raised there. I I. Um, my experience in Haiti was um, my living with my parents, um, mom and dad. Um, but at that time, it was we had in Haiti a dictator, dictatorial government. And if anybody know anything about dictators, if when you live in a country like that, politically you cannot say anything negative, or you cannot even talk, say anything bad about the government. And my dad was in a, a group of young men. At this time, they didn't even allow young men or people to gather together. Because every time you're together, they think you're talking about the government or plotting something. But my dad was in a, a group of young men. And um, they were unhappy about what was going on in the country, having somebody in um, power for so many years. So they were thinking about how things can change. They got caught doing that. Um, some of them escaped. Most, most of them were killed right on a public place for uh, uh, everybody to see. But my dad had a chance to escape. So he left Haiti and came here to the US. So um, my dad leaving in the US wasn't something that he never he wanted to do. He loves Haiti, he loves his country. Always wanted to be, to stay in Haiti. Uh, for years, he was like a militant, trying to work and see how they can change, or thinking that when things change, how he can go back to Haiti. Um, which, uh, in 86, to, you know, everybody was so happy because the dictator uh, was um, we get we got rid of the um, this um, government. We thought things was gonna change, including my dad, and he kept saying, "I'm coming back." But um, finally, um, he realized that nothing was changed. He was, he was still in, in exile, and he couldn't go back to Haiti because he was still. Um, it was the same type of government. So um, one, uh, um, in the meantime, my mom died. So we were still the children in Haiti. Um, my dad, we married. And his wife then thought, you know, one day, he, he, because he always get up in the morning and um, go jogging. And she thought he went jogging, but that morning, he went to the step of the parliament of Boston in Massachusetts and set himself on fire. Mm -hmm. But he wrote a lot of 
notes, leaving how, the changes that he wanted for Haiti and everything. Once he did that, the news went back to Haiti. I heard the news on the radio while I was uh, listening to the news that dad set himself on fire, he died, and they started rioting in Haiti. So that caused an uproar. Um, um, they started shooting, looking uh, for us, and they, sent, they told us we have to leave the country. So all us kids had to leave Haiti with, with nothing. Uh, you know, you just didn't have time to say bye to friends or family. We just have to leave. So that's what we end up in Boston. For my dad's funeral then, because we didn't have, we didn't know his wife. We didn't have close family there. We moved to Canada to his mom, my dad, my grandma that used to live in Canada. So that's how I end up in Canada then. Um, I, my boyfriend, who was my high, high, high school sweetheart, used to live in Haiti. He moves to Florida. When he moves to Florida, he proposed. So I moved to Florida, and I end up here yeah. in America. Yeah. So, you know, if like if you know Kathleen, you love Kathleen, and, and I've known her for a number of years, and um, I, and this is me, and this is where like you know even my own blind spots come in. I never thought of Kathleen as an immigrant. Like, she's just, you know, my friend. But but you are an immigrant. Um, but I also know, like, because of that, um, there are certain stereotypes people have or even push back. Um, as an immigrant, what are some things that maybe you've run into where people have been hurtful or, or pushed against that? Uh, as an immigrant, and on top of it, a black immigrant, <laughs> it makes a big difference. Um, Sometimes people um, tend to tell you to go back home. Uh, go home. Uh, where is home? <laughs> that's where God put me now. I feel like that's where I belong. That's my country. And um, people leave their country for many different reasons. Um, it's not, you know, some people are looking for a better life. Some people look for um, security, um, political yeah. issues, financial issues, so uh, religious. People live for every different reason. And uh, uh, when God allow people to come here, because there are so many people that wish they could come, mm -hmm. but they are not. But the ones that are here, I believe that there is a reason. Mm -hmm. I believe that God, it's, the plan, it's in the plan of God for them to be there. But for people to look at them and tell them, oh, go back home, or wonder what you're doing here, it's, yeah. it's painful. Yeah. And I know, like, uh, we've talked about, you know, most immigrants come here because they're, they're looking to contribute to society. They're not, looking, they're not getting anything free, you know? Um, and also, you made a point, too, about um, the fact that we're all immigrants at some point we've come here you know um some some more recently than others but um man i, I thank you for sharing um, your story with us um, a question i guess for both of you guys um you know whether it's just as a result of being an immigrant or just racism there, there are times where um you know people 
you know, either they think they're being helpful and they're not, or they're just ignorant. And so what are some of the things that maybe you've run across where people have been, been harmful to you guys? Maybe they don't even realize what they're doing. Jay, we'll start with you. I've had, I've had a couple experiences. I've, um, I used to work in retail, and I remember helping a lady um, with a pair of shoes, and, you know, all she wanted was red shoes. And I asked her, like, you know, like, what's your fascination with red? Why do you like red shoes so much? And she, her response was, well, why do you like chicken and watermelon so much? <laughs> and, um, and I looked like, wow, they are so bold here, you know? Because, you know, like, I would have never experienced that in Cleveland. And, um, you know, another situation where, um, for example, like I said, uh, like Tamir Rice, I played in that same park um, where he was murdered um, within, like, two seconds of the officers exiting um, that car. And, um, or Eric Gardner, or the gentleman in, in North, uh, South Carolina, I believe, who was, you know, shot in the back, fleeing from an officer. And people always say, like, you know, what were they doing? You know, I'm like, no, he was shot in the back. You know, he's a 12-year-old boy playing with a, a gun in a playground. You know, that's what kids do. But I think it's so cold and, and inconsiderate and um, very shallow when a person makes such a remark after someone's lost their life, um, especially a kid or, or anyone, you know. So things like that really move me in a very uh, emotional way when people just can't understand um, the, the simple approach is to look at it from like a humane standpoint, you know. Yeah, you made the point when we were talking, you know, whether it's George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, I mean, unfortunately the list is too long. If you take race out of it, and we're just having a conversation, you said, hey, somebody was shot in the back nine times. Your first reaction is, oh, that's awful. Um, but a lot of times when race comes into play, then uh, let me put up walls because I'm uncomfortable about it. So they must have been doing something um, because then we might have bigger issues to work through. And so having letting compassion lead us and be the first response. Um, Kathleen, how about for you? Um, I've seen many times, or I've experienced many times where people, I have an accent, and sometimes, <laughs> oh, people didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, a lot of the time, um, people, they start talking to you, and the minute they hear that you have an accent, it's like, oh, they dismiss you, or they, they don't, you know, pay attention anymore to what you're saying. Or even um, I had experience um, working in uh, healthcare and were um, a patient, somebody who needed to speak to somebody about a patient, and I, could, I was the one that could give them the best information about what they needed to know, but the minute um, she was talking to somebody that is um, white, and she was like very pleasant and getting all the info, thinking, you know, asking uh, questions. But when she said, told her, let me go get the person that can help you. But the minute she saw me, it just says, I'll forget it. Like it's like she, you know, dismiss you automatically. These things can, um, and people have to remember if you see something, say something. Um, a lot of time people in, um, don't, they are afraid to say things, not, they don't want to hurt other people's feelings or they don't want to get involved. But there are a lot of little things that are, be, that are happening, happening that you can say something and make it better. 
make, you know, make a difference. That's so good. Because I think it is important for those of us who are white, like, you know, we can look at the KKK or like these, some of these examples and be like, well, I would never do that. And, and hopefully that is the truth. Um, but it's not enough to not do it. We actually have to advocate and be responsible for actively loving and standing up in situations like that. Um, if you could just snap your fingers and we could all just what you just knew, like, this is the one thing everybody's going to remember walking away from today. What would, what would you want us to walk away with? Jay, we'll start with you again. Step into that conversation. Um, don't shun it. Don't look for an exit clause from, you know, that uncomfortable conversation. I think people look for more reasons not to do the right thing because it's easier. And, you know, there's that sense of belonging. Everyone has that sense of belonging. But I'm very confident and I understand who I want to belong to, you know. And some people do things with family members or because there's something at, at, at risk, whether it's being out, cut out the will or whatever it may be. Just have that supreme confidence to want to do the right thing. That's really good. That's really good. Kathleen? Oh, love people for who they are. Mm. Um, look beyond the color of their skin mm. or beyond their background or beyond their, or where they come from. Because people are people, and God loves people. That's what my Bible says. God loves everybody. Um, when I, I read in Revelation where it says, um, people from every nation, every race. So every color will be there. So he loves everybody, and I think that's what we should do. Come on, preach it. Come on. Somebody give an amen on that. <laughs> Kathleen's preaching next week, too. So you want to come back? <laughs> no, guys, I just, uh, I, I appreciate you guys sharing. And one last question for you. I know we're over time, but a lot of us have kids who are over there, so we'll take as much time as we need. Um, why Bridgepoint? Because, again, this is, look around the room. There's a lot of white people in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a few. But uh, you, you, you could be at any church. Why Bridgepoint? Oh, f for me, uh, my wife made me come. Amen. Amen. And, uh, and uh, so, and 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 when I and when the demand, she downplayed the demand a little bit and, and said you would really enjoy Matt. You know, I'm like, who? All right. So when I came, I actually did enjoy. Uh, your, your message at that time and the experience of, of being in the presence of, of such so many individuals who just didn't look like me I, it was actually very comforting when I first came in because they greeted me with open arms and it was it was it was a breath of fresh air because that's obviously something I've never experienced and you know man camp and things of that nature just moved me in a way some of those guys probably don't even know you know that's awesome. Jay said he'd never been around that many white men for that long before. <laughs> as well as being in the woods. Um, man, I don't know how we transition from that now. Um, but for you guys to know, Kathleen, you've been here a while. Why, after all these years, why still Bridgepoint? Bridgepoint has, has always been a um, comfort place for me. It feels like family. I've been here since 2006. Oh, <laughs> when, gee. <laughs> when we were in the high school, 
we went and visited and we fell in love. My kids grew up here. Um, I love, I love Bridgepoint. Um, it, like I said, it's a family. Um, I enjoy being here. Um, I know, I like the same thing you say. I have family members that and friends that ask me, why you come to a white church? What happened? You know? <laughs> I don't see my color. I don't see color. I see people. So I feel love and I love people. So I'm here. That's and awesome. I love you. Sorry, Bethany. I didn't ask them that for the pat on the back, but I did ask them that because I want you guys to know, golly, I didn't do it in the first service. I'm not going to do it in the second service. Um, that's what church is supposed to be. It's family. And we live in a world where, man, I don't know how often these conversations get to happen. And we get to get in front of a big room of people and have these conversations and just sit with the awkwardness and the uncomfortability. Um, but man, I'm just so appreciative for you guys. Would you just let them know how much you appreciate it? I know we got life group stuff to get together, but I called an audible this morning and said, we can't not have communion. Because communion in the Bible is not a stale little cracker and prepackaged juice. It was a meal. And man, we got some good food. We'll have a, a good meal together here in a little bit. Man, that was the meal that was so radical. Because slave and free and rich and poor and Jewish, non-Jewish, they all came together around the table. It was so radical in that culture. And I think that in the same way, a church that can come together left or right, black or white, rich or poor, and we can share this meal together, that's the gospel in action. That's the dividing wall of hostility coming down. And so I can't think of a better way this morning than just to spend a moment to pray and then to have communion as a church family. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll do life group stuff, but I don't want to pass up this moment here. And so today, as you have the body and the, the blood of Jesus, let's remember that the dividing wall has come down. Let's ask Jesus, what do we need to do in response? How can we listen to people who are different than us? How can we prioritize and love them, even if it costs us something? So all across this room, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? Jesus, we're just so thankful. We're thankful that you brought that dividing wall down. I'm thankful for Jay and Kathleen and their boldness just to share their story. And I pray you would be with us. Help us to be humble enough to be challenged by it, to be stretched by it. And I pray that as we have your body and your blood today, this would be the gospel with flesh. That we would show the world what it looks like to be a different kind of church. A church that's centered on you. Help us just to be a little piece of heaven on earth. It's in your name I pray. Amen. As you feel led, we have two communion tables up at the front. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, We'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. 
If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.